I am glad you are here. I was warned not to do this, but in your bulletin that you got, there is a crossword puzzle. Do not be doing it now. That's what everybody told me. They're going to be doing that right now. I said, yeah, surely not. But I will tell you this. Anybody know the answer? I put one clue in there. Old, 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 old man at Valley View. Can anybody guess who that is? Bill Berry. So there's one of yours, okay? Just want you to know that. But, but there's people catching up, like Alfreda Davis, who's now 80. And she told me, I said, how many birthday cards you got? 123. And the rule is, however many cards you get on your 80th birthday is how long you're going to live. So we're going to have her for a good long time. You might want to scope out a guy and get married again. You just never know. But anyway, Bill Barrett? No, I, 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 I don't ever do that at church because that will only backfire on you. How many are doing the 40 days? How many? Hold them up real high. Okay, good. And I want you to know, if you're not, do you remember here in the picture directory? You're going to be prayed for by the people who are. So I want you to know you're going to be blessed by this whether you engage in the whole journey or not because we're praying for every single member. Now, you're going to say, well, <clears throat> there are some members who become members since the picture director. That's true. And that's why you're going to be given a little sticker thing that you can put in your <coughs> excuse me, picture directory. Uh, and that will, at the end of the 40 days, you're going to have one day where you say, take that handout you've been given and pray for those folks too. So nobody's going to be left out. We're going to try to leave nobody out of this because it's a big deal. We're grateful uh, that you're participating and grateful that you're here today. Um, Spare, pears and spares. How many of you went to Jerry Taylor's farm uh, Friday night? Raise your hand real good. Good. Uh, I'll be looking at you because you'll be going to sleep here just pretty soon. I understand it was a great time out there. I wish I could have been there and seen that. Uh, I, as, as people come in, there's a few, few folks I'm always looking for. Uh, maybe visitors, maybe people that have had some health stuff like Dennis and Janet are here. Janet didn't get to be here last Sunday because she was otherwise preoccupied in a hospital room. And now she begins a whole new stint of faithfulness and two whole new stints of faithfulness and grateful that she is well. I also looked out there and Linda Goat is here. She has gone through a time uh, in recent weeks where she has sat with her daughter and watched the daughter pass away and buried her and it was difficult and she is here today. And I got to tell you, I know it's everything it took for her to be here, and I want her to know that we're grateful that she's present. Also, her um, grandson is here, the son of the daughter who passed away. His name is River, but he's got a nickname that he uses with video games called Nibbles. So if you ever see River, River, you call him Nibbles and see what he does, okay? Just, that's his nickname here, and grateful that he's here. Let's, let's sing. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Little ones to him belong. They are weak, but he is strong. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. The Bible tells me so. Paul, did you not turn that off this time? Can you not with the new microphones? Oh, you still could? You just, okay, you just tormented everybody. Great, you're going to go home never the same. Matthew chapter 24. Uh, Jesus is in the middle of this long sermon that we began last week. I hate to call it a sermon because it's not that. 
he is answering a question that the 11 disciples asked him. And uh, after they asked him this question, they take a walk down this, uh, down this hill up the Mount of Olives, and then they look back on the temple, and Jesus answers that question with this long uh, sermon. It's not really a sermon, but I don't know what else to call it. And last week we talked about the, the meat of that sermon, that question they ask, and he, he answers the question, and we did too last week. You don't know when uh, the day of Jesus' uh, return is going to be. It's going to be a surprise to everyone, and you have to be ready when it comes. That was the heart of the doctrine. That was the heart and the meat of the sermon. But then Jesus launches into four stories. And these stories they serve as an application. A, a sermon is not done, and for years I've heard people preach as if the only thing we want to know is what this text said. But a sermon's not done until you tell me what difference it makes in my life. It's called application. It's the so what. Now you know every person who's taught how to do a closing prayer comes up and says, Lord, help us to apply the thing that was preached today in our lives. What they're saying is, Help us to find some kind of practical relevance for our lives. A sermon needs to take a text of Scripture and show you why it matters tomorrow morning when you wake up. And so Jesus does that through stories. After he talked about that day, we don't know when it's coming. It's going to be a surprise, and you need to be ready when it comes. He says, let me, <clears throat> let me help you apply this. And so he starts it with <coughs> excuse me, the, the verses that were read just a moment ago. The first story goes like this in Matthew chapter 24. We're going to look at the story. Who is, he starts it off with a question, verse 45. Who then, the fact that we don't know when it's coming, it's going to be a surprise and you need to be ready. Who then is the faithful wise servant whom the master finds ready? Who is the kind of person? And he tells this story. And the story simply goes like this. A man goes away, but he leaves his house and his servants under the care of a main servant. And he says, I want you to take care of the servants, and I want you to take care of my stuff. I don't know when I'll be back, but I'm going to come back. And when, I'm ready, when I come back, I expect to see things like they're supposed to be. So he goes away. Now that servant has two choices. Choice number one, he can do what he was supposed to be doing the whole time, so that whenever the master comes back, he's always ready. That makes sense to me. Okay, if you know what you're supposed to be doing and you have no idea when he might drop in, it may be at night when you're asleep, it may be when you have the least expected and you're watching a Razorbacks game or something. You have no idea when to come back. So here's what you do. Be doing what he told you to do the entire time so that no matter when he comes back, you're ready. This makes sense, right? Now this is one of the things I have debates with people, discussions, and I, I don't, I'm, not, I'm not one of these that say you have to go to a Christian school when you go to college. I'm not saying that. But I do uh, find it weird when people say to me, I don't want to go to that Christian college because I don't like all the rules. Rules like, you know, guys' dorms, guys' dorms, girls' dorms, girls' dorms. We don't want to join them together like a lot of state schools do. I like the rule. I think the rule's a really good idea. And I think that's a rule that you should honor whether that rule is there or not. Does that make sense to you? I really think that a Christian who's internalized the things of God kind of honors that rule even if it's not in place by a human being. I think, uh, I think the one that says you shouldn't drink on campus, 
I think that's a good rule. I think you should not do that anyway. And so the fact that the rule's in place shouldn't have any bearing whatsoever. And so he's, I don't want all these rules. And I'm just looking at him like, what's wrong with you? You should be living this way for the return of Christ anyway. It makes sense to me. Others will not. I did have a rebellious stage at CRC in Paragould. I snuck out. We went to Taco Bell. I did. We've done it before. Here's the problem with that. <clears throat> Curfew is 12.15 and Taco Bell closed at midnight. I mean, what can you do? There wasn't even a 24-hour Walmart in 1990 in Paragould. What are you going to be doing past 12.15 anyway? I can't think of anything good at all. So the fact that that rule's there, what's the big deal? That's what I think about this sermon. The sermon just says, you know what? I should just... I should just do what I should be doing all the time, all the time. And that way, if I'm caught, so what? Now, the other thing the servant could do is, it's been a long time, I don't think he's coming around, I think he's still quite a few days off, so I'm just going to abuse the servants, I'm not going to feed them, I'm just going to beat them, and I'm just going to expect a lot out of them, not pay them, and I'm going to go around and hang around with drunkards and, and tax collectors and prostitutes, and I'm, gonna, I'm just going to live it all up, because I can pretty well guess when he might be back. That's the other option. And Jesus is just saying, you choose that, and by the way, this is your life, you choose one route or the other. Everybody does in light of what we know about the return of Christ. And so here's the moral of the story. Do what he told you to do so that no matter when he comes back, you're in good shape. That makes sense, doesn't it? Story number two. Story number two is of ten virgins. They all have lamps that look exactly like this one. This is a gift Martha Rampey gave me about six weeks before she died. She has a few of these in her house, and she just wanted me to have one. I thought, well... I might use it one of these days. Well, here's the day, just a few months later. It, it, it's an old-fashioned clay lamp, and they would put the oil in here. There'd be a wick here, and they could hold it like this. And that's kind of where they, at nighttime, that's the only source of light you had. This is a weird story. I can't pretend to understand all the wedding uh, stuff of the first century, but I know these ten virgins were to be part of a party. As soon as the bridegroom arrived... They go into the party place, and they party it up. <clears throat> it's a wonderful gift from the bridegroom to all the friends of the bride, right? So uh, they're all there. They all have their lamps. It's at night. It's taking longer. All these stories he tells, it takes longer than you expect it to. So the delay of Christ is going to be longer than you think, I think Jesus is saying. It's not going to be as quick as you think it is. But he says, I want you to be prepared no matter when it is. And so they have their lamps. But as they, as they sit there, if you've ever been around a lamp like this very much, <clears throat> and it gets dark, and you're waiting, and you get a little sleepy. That seems to happen like Eutychus, all the smell of the lamp, and, and he falls out the window and dies, right? Well, this, these, these ten virgins all fall asleep. Nothing wrong with falling asleep. But all of a sudden, they hear the cry that the bridegroom is here, the time for the party is now, and so they kind of jolt awake, and uh, their lamps are all out. They went out while they were sleeping. And so the wise ones, there's five wise ones, they have this little flask of oil. They pop that oil in there. They relight it, and they're ready for when he comes, just any second now. The other five have no light. They didn't think it would take this long, so they didn't bring extra oil. And they say to the other uh, virgins, uh, give us some of your oil too. And they said, we don't have enough. Go find your own. And at midnight... 
Trying to find oil in the first century might take a little longer. So as they're out there looking, here comes the bridegroom. They open up the party place. They all go in, and the door is closed. And when the five foolish virgins who weren't prepared finally arrive with their lit candle, lit lamps, uh, they can't get in. They don't know you, and you aren't allowed in. Moral of the story, two things that I can see in this story. Number one is... You've got to be ready or you'll miss out. There is no probationary period. There is no second chance. Once the door is open, the party starts and it's closed, you have no shot. Be ready or not. The second thing is that I see in this story is that you have to have your own readiness. No one can get ready. Loan me your readiness. Let me put your readiness in my life. No one can get ready for you. No one can make you be ready. And for parents, this is a difficult thing because they come and, and they have trouble with their homework and sometimes we find ourselves doing it for them. And an awful lot of times we, they, they run out of money in college, right? So we put a little more in their account so we help them. We, 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 we bail them out some. Can I tell you something about the spiritual life of your kids? You can't give them your red. It's either they have it or they don't. Now, you can encourage, and you can pray, and you can exemplify this, but you cannot make your kids be ready. They must choose it. And this is the heartbreak of many of you. I think biblical writers have known this because Moses tried this, and Paul did too. God, my people aren't ready. Take my readiness and give it to them and give me their... God says, no, do that. It doesn't work that way. Oh, how I wish it did. It doesn't work that way. And so if you're going to be ready, you've got to choose it, and you've got to be ready, and you've got to have your readiness prepared, and no one else can give it to you. Story number three is a, a, a business one. A guy goes on his journey. He leaves behind three of his workers, and it becomes a test for them. He's going to see how they handle the responsibility, not only of running a household, but he gives them some of his money and says, I want to see how you use this money. It's called a talent. That's amount of money in the first century. So he gives one of them five talents, another one of them two talents, another one of them one talent. And then he goes away, and he doesn't tell them when he's coming back, but when he comes back, it says, he makes them give account. He settled accounts with them. And the one that had five said, see, I went out there and risked and worked, and I've got five more for you. I've doubled what you gave me. Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little. I'm going to set you over a lot. Enter into the joy of your master. Now I'm going to pause here and do a sidetrack. Heaven is not going to be one long worship service. I need an Amen. A lot of people think we're going to sing forever. Can you imagine a perpetual, eternal Mitchell Fitz party, right? Leading singing. How many stirrings can we do? How many rounds can we go? Can you imagine? By the way, we won't feel a stirring anymore. It will be there part of us, right? Can you imagine a sermon that lasts for a long? Now, don't, don't say yes because we're living one right now. Don't say it. I know you might be thinking, don't say it. He's gonna, I'm going to put you over things. You're going to be ruler over things. And I, I, one of the members from 
early service, said, I think I'm going to run uh, uh, like a farm and take care of animals. And I'm going to, I said, you know what, you might. Because it's not just going to be this long, long worship service where we sing just as I am, 473, 8,000 verses of it. No, it's not going to be that. We're going to be given responsibility and we are going to serve the Lord in a very direct and work way. So let's enter the story again. And so he says, I'm going to put you over a bunch of stuff. You've been proven trustworthy with the resources I've given you. I just gave you a little bit and you doubled it. I'm going to give you a lot in that life. The, the guy with two talents, the same way. But the guy with one, the guy with one said, you know, I know what kind of master you are. You, 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 you reap where you didn't even sow. You're a harsh, shrewd man. And I didn't want to disappoint you, so I buried my talent in the ground so that I wouldn't risk anything. I wouldn't risk losing it. And I've got it right here to give you. I'm going to give you exactly what you gave me. And he is angry and he says, your idea about me was wicked and your usefulness is lazy. In other words, you didn't do what you were supposed to. You don't know me at all. If that's what you thought of my nature, you're wrong. He gave that talent away and threw him out in the outer darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. The moral of the story of the talents is God has given you resources. And every resource in your life, every gift from him is for a purpose, to build up his kingdom. And if you aren't building up his kingdom with your time and your talents and your money, then you are wasteful of his money, and he will make you give an account of that. That's serious. Finally, there's a last story. I don't think it's a parable. I think it's kind of like a glimpse of the final judgment. The judge at the final judgment will be the very son of man who sacrificed his life for us. So he's not only savior and redeemer, but he is judge with a gavel in his hand. Now I want you to remember that the people hearing this are not just a general sermon of people. This is a sermon to disciples. There's 11 of them. And he's telling them this and he said, let me tell you about the judgment. I'm going to be judging them. And you know what I'm going to use as a standard? I'm going to judge the nations. Do you get that in the story? This is the whole nations, all the nations of people. Everybody will be judged based on what? On how they treated the children of God. These brothers of mine, those who are in Christ, who are related to Jesus because they're brothers and they're children of God, how the nations treat Christian people will be the standard of judgment. Now, why do the disciples need to hear that? Because they're trying to reach the nations. And they're going to be mistreated and they're going to face all sorts of persecution from the nations. And God says, I want you to know, I see every slight. I see everything they do and they will be called to account for it. And so will you, how you treat the least of my people. Moral of the story is Jesus is the son of man will be the judge. And he will judge people by how they treated his own. You put all these stories together and I want to know, Okay, Jesus, what do you want me to know for Monday morning? My life tomorrow, how is it impacted by these stories you've told about this truth that you've presented? The first thing he says, I think, in all these stories is that you study the standard of judgment. You know the criteria, is God's, criteria God is going to use. Every one of these, God said, I left, you in or, I left my house, my servant, to take care of the servants and take care of my stuff. I, I left you with some resources to uh, build up my kingdom. And every one of these, he says, I've, I've left you a standard that you'll be judged by. I'm not going to judge you 
and then I'm going to keep it secret what I'm going to use to judge you. I'm going to tell you exactly how I'm going to judge, the criteria I'm going to use. Now, if you're a public school teacher, here's what I know. They test way too much in our world. And everything relies, everything goes back to the test. The test that determines whether the teachers are doing their job or not. The test that determines whether the kids have any intelligence or not. The test does all this stuff. And so what we've come to do in our teaching, we teach for the test. I'm not teaching for life anymore. I'm not teaching for life skills and how to get along in the world. I'm not teaching character. What I'm teaching is how to get the best results on the standardized test that they'll be judged for. And you know what? It makes all the sense in the world. If you know that everything's going to be judged by how well they do on the test, well, then here's what you do. Why don't you just teach the test so that they master it through your teaching? God's doing the same thing. He's told us in his word, here's the criteria I'm going to use to judge you. How do you treat your fellow Christian? How do you use the resources I've given you to build up my kingdom and my interests? How do you do that? This is the criteria. So if you know the criteria, church, then let's live for the test. Let's live for the judgment. Let's not get involved in different minutia of, let's live for this. If you're in a class most of the, most of the time, like at CRC when you're teaching, they tell us you've got to give them a study guide. They just don't, you know, when you do notes and you do books, they need a study guide. So you give them a study guide. I'll say to the guys, every question on the test is on the study guide. Don't mess with all the other stuff. Just go with the study guide. And God does the same thing for us. He's given us, published to us, the standard he's going to use. It only makes sense then to study that standard and live out of it. Second thing he says is don't get distracted. Each one of these stories tells us the delay of Christ is going to be longer than you think. But do not let yourself get distracted by something. I'm going to call this the comprehensive GPA principle. Now here's what you know. Last year, for instance, in Kennett, there were six, I think, six valedictorians, which I don't understand how you can do that. But a valedictorian has the highest GPA of anybody in the four years of high school, and it's comprehensive, which means every year is added to every year, and it's the total thing, right? It becomes so close that just like a .0001 will turn the difference between valedictorian and nothing. And often, that will also be the point that determines full-ride scholarship or just partial. So, your GPA matters. And we talk to ninth graders about this because, you know what, ninth graders have been bopping along and you just, try to, you just try to get to the next grade. That's all you're trying to do. And you say to ninth graders, listen, it starts now. It starts now. Everything matters right now. It's going to matter. What you do carelessly in the third week of your freshman year can matter the difference between valedictorian or not. We're not playing games anymore. You've got to get serious about this. And you say this to college students, too. And you want to say to them, listen, college is expensive. You've got to get some scholarships to so start paying attention now. And you know what? It doesn't matter how many times you say it. It doesn't sink in until 12th grade year with four weeks left. Oh, that's what you were saying. You know, there are people who miss out on a valedictorian because of a homework assignment in the freshman year third week. And they thought, I'm tired. I don't want to mess with this. What's the big deal? It's just the freshman year. I can make up for it. 
And because of that week and that carelessness, they lose out on the valedictorian at the end. Does that happen? It happens. And God is saying to us, listen, God's going to judge you for the overall work of your life, but every moment matters. Listen, tomorrow morning may seem like just another Monday. Monday, Monday, right? Might be another, it's not another Monday, it's another day in the life that leads to your judgment. And the decisions you make tomorrow matter. So study the standard of judgment and don't get distracted. And there's one last thing these parables teach us. Pick your destination. Go ahead right now and decide, pick your destination. Imagine you're going to go on a wonderful, uh, all-inclusive trip somewhere. And you get to pick where you're going to go. And you're going to read all these details about what your destination is going to be. You could go to Puerto Rico, Bahamas. I wouldn't recommend either one of those at the moment, but you, you could go somewhere else. Here's what these stories tell us about your destination. Look at this chart on the next page. The first side over here is, is the one I would recommend for you, okay? Uh, and you'll see why in a minute. How many think, okay, uh, when, when at the end of judgment God looks at you and says, I'm setting you over these possessions of mine. That's a good destination. Over here, I'm going to cast you out for weeping and gnashing of teeth. How many think this sounds better? Would you rather say, I'm going to set you over wonderful... That sounds better than weeping and gnashing of teeth, right? Not many of you... Weeping and gnashing just doesn't sound good. Now, I don't know what an image that is, but it's negative. Uh, Enjoy the marriage feast, he says to you. And to you over here, he says, uh, the door's shut. I have no idea who you are. To you, he says, well done, good and faithful servant. To you all, he says, you're wicked and lazy. I can't stand you anymore. You see where this destination's coming from? You choose your end. We're going to wrap up with a children's story. Everybody needs a children's story once in a while. I'm going to read you a children's book. You're going to get the pictures. Milo and the Magical Stones by Marcus Pfister. Marcus Pfister is this guy who likes to put little glossy, like, glow stuff in his stories. So you look at the stories, and I'll read it to you, at least some of it. So in the middle of the sea, there was an island. On this island lived Milo and the other cliff mice. They loved their island. It provided them with food and shelter and protection from the rough storms that pounded waves against the cliffs. Nice island. During the summer, Milo and his friends worked hard gathering food. Sometimes they would take a break from their work and skip flat stones out over the sea. In the evenings, the mice would stretch out on the cliffs that had been warmed by the sun and watch the stars in the night sky. I I ripped that page. That's a piece of tape. Sorry. If it was warm enough, they would spend the entire night outside telling stories and enjoying the mild summer air. But when the first winter storms arrived, the mice would spend most of the time huddled in their dark, damp caves, dreaming of light and warmth. Ah, and here's where the color comes. After one of these storms, Milo crept out of his cave, looking for food. He poked his nose curiously into every crevice. And then, in a particularly deep crevice, he saw something extraordinary, a strange, glowing stone. 
Using a long stick, he carefully pried it out and carried it back to his cave. Milo was amazed to see that the darker it got, the more brightly the stone glowed. And not only did it provide light, but it gave off this comforting warmth. Happily, Milo curled up in the corner of his cave with his treasure. But he was not alone for long because the bright light soon attracted the other mice. This has a really nice glow right here in the real book, okay? Everyone wanted a stone of his own, and they asked Milo to show them where he'd found his. But just as they were about to set off, wise Balthazar stood up and spoke. Don't forget, he said, the stones belong to the island. If you take something from the island, you must give something in return. At this point, the page is cut in half, and you have to choose. The drama, the tension is set with this page. This is the good ending. This is the bad ending. And we're not going to read either one of them. You get to this point with the information you've got, you can kind of guess what the end is. But the end is determined by what you choose from here forth. Jesus gives this great sermon. You don't know when it's going to happen. It's going to surprise everybody, and you've got to be ready. And then he gives these stories about how you can be ready. Now, are you going to choose the good ending? Or are you going to choose the bad ending? You choose for yourself by how you live. And this morning, pick a destination. Study the criteria, and don't get distracted. I would suggest you choose the good ending. The ending that says you're going to be ready no matter what. You're going to live ready so that you'll be ready. That's the one I suggest, but I'm going to tell you, you have the total freedom to live any way you want to, and God's going to honor your choice. You have the moment to decide this. What ending do I choose? And this morning, if you want to switch endings, maybe some of you right now are on a path where if you continue there, it's going to end bad. You have a choice right now to switch endings. The freedom is right now. Choose right now. I'm going to make Jesus Lord of my life. I'm going to make him be the one who determines the destination for my life because I'm going to choose him. And this morning, if you want to do that, confess your sin, say the name of Jesus with your lips, and be immersed. And if you've done that and gone astray, you can rename the name of Jesus from your lips in front of this group of people. Choice is yours. Is it going to be the good ending or the bad ending? It's completely up to you as we stand and as we sing. Just as